listening to another episode of the Carboline Tech Service Podcast. I'm Jack Walker. With me, as always, is the Director of Technical Service, Mr. Paula Jamis. Paul, how's it going today? It's going great, Jack. It's good to be here again. We're kind of in the swing. We're enjoying these podcasts. We're getting a lot of great feedback. It's nice getting to talk to people, hear from people. I want to remind everybody how to reach us, technicalservice at carboline.com. You can also get us on Twitter. Jack's at Jack underscore CTSP. I'm at Paul underscore CTSP. So we just wrapped up a two-part inorganic zinc series where we talked about all the greatness that is the inorganic zincs. We're going to kind of switch gears today and we're going to talk about something that is near and dear to my heart, and that's the uh, surface prep of concrete. Yeah, I don't think we could get much further away from carbon steel and inorganic zinc than heading down the path of of concrete now. Well, you know, much like inorganic zinc, concrete is porous. (laughs) So that's the tie-in that you're making. Hey, I'm a professional. Film at 11. You are correct. Concrete is very porous. It's sometimes described as like a sponge. It breathes. It lets moisture go through it. It's full of capillaries and routes for water to just be able to just migrate through it. That's one of the main reasons why when we talk about concrete, the first thing we try if we're ever involved with a specification is we want them to put a vapor barrier on the back side of the concrete. It's the only chance you get to put one in is when you're starting the project. When they put it in, it makes everything afterwards so much easier. You're actually skipping a little ahead of me. You know, one of the things that I always tell people, I have to give this talk regularly at our corrosion school. That's right. Four times a year, Carbline does a corrosion school where you can come in and two days free school, learn all about topics related to corrosion. But anyway, I have an 11 year old son. You guys heard him on episode nine or something like that. Growing up, SpongeBob was his favorite TV show. And and if you've ever seen SpongeBob, if you have little kids, or maybe you're a big kid yourself and you like to watch SpongeBob. Anyway. I, don't, I won't judge. Yeah. SpongeBob's best friend is a starfish named Patrick. And Patrick is what we'll say is not smart. That's that's a nice way to put it. So when we talk about concrete being a sponge, I used to I usually like to use this analogy where I say we don't want to be Patrick when it comes to coating our sponge. We we want to be smarter than that. So we're going to kind of guide you along the way of some of the things that we always look for when we're coating concrete so that you can avoid being a Patrick star. That's a great analogy, Jack. Because <laughs> it gets the point across. And I'm, I'm, sure you get, I'm sure you get the same amount of laughs in corrosion school that we get four times a year here at Carveline. I get a lot of laughs at corrosion school. Even if you don't, though. You keep going with the same jokes. Yeah, the jokes don't stop just because the laughs do. We wanted to start off talking about the to truly understand how to prep concrete the correct way, we need to understand what concrete is. And to oversimplify things, concrete really is mostly sand and gravel. Now there's cement, Portland cement that's in there, and that glues the sand and gravel together. You need water in order to mix it. But that water is mostly going to evaporate out. And then due to the structure that is set up when it cures, there's a lot of air in concrete as well. There really is. And in fact, there's a type of concrete that puts extra air into it. Well, that's another important thing. There are several different types of concrete. There is probably 10 different types of concrete. Most typically, people have type 1 or type 2. 
Yeah, especially when we're talking about painting them. Type 1 and Type 2 are your slower concretes. They take about 28 days to, to reach full cure. And then there's the the faster concretes, the, what they call high early concrete. That means it gets a compressive strength early in its cure. And, and that's important. So for a long time, the industry has said that concrete needs to cure for 28 days in order to be coated. Well, that 28 days is based upon the cure rate of the concrete. The important thing before we coat concrete to recognize is that we need most of the water that is in the concrete to be out of it when we coat. Because the water is trying to evaporate out into the air if we put a coating over the concrete before the water is completely evaporated out, that water could push the coating off the surface. That's right. It's like we're trying to, we're putting up essentially a plastic bag, tightly adherent to the surface of the concrete, and it's just not going to let water go out at the rate that it's trying to evaporate out. The old school thinking has always been 28 days before you coat. We are getting more and more to a correlation of compressive strength and moisture in your concrete in order to coat rather than just a hard, fast rule of days. That's right, Jack, because in that high early, it'll frequently reach those compressive strengths in one or two or maybe seven days. It's a it's a much faster cure process. And it all has to do with the type of cement and how finely it's grind ground and some processes, some steps in the process of making it. The key compressive strength that we always look at for any type of coating is around 3,600 PSI. That's right, give or take. Every coating company is going to have a little difference in this standard, but it's a it's right around there. And what we're looking at, that number comes from the standard that most concretes are shooting for in most construction applications is generically in that 5,000 PSI compressive strength. And that 3,600 to 4,000 kind of number that number comes from what is approximately 80% of the final cure or the final compressive strength of cured concrete. So that compressive strength allows us to know that the concrete is going to be strong enough to handle the different methods of abrasion that we're going to require prior to coating that concrete. And it's also a good indicator that enough of the moisture has come out of the concrete. We're going to talk about some of the standards associated with concrete prep and the Bible. If you would say, no offense to the actual Bible, but the Bible of the surface prep world for concrete is the NACE number no. 6 SSPC SP13 standard. This standard includes pretty much everything that you would need to know in order to prep concrete. It gives you information about the design and build of concrete, the requirements of the concrete prior to coating. It references the other ASTM standards that you're going to need for moisture tests. It really could not be more inclusive of a document if they tried. That's right. They really did a good job with this one. And that's the main reason why it turned into a joint standard. Both NACE and SSPC realized that everybody was going to benefit by them having a, a single standard to follow. One of the great quotes from this document is, an acceptable prepared concrete surface should be free of contaminants, latents, loosely adhered concrete and dust, and should provide a sound uniform substrate suitable for the application of a protective coating or lining system. This one sentence summarizes what this several page document goes on to explain in further detail. It really does. One of the things that it talks about is that everything, you know, just like when we're coating steel, we're talking about the substrate being clean, dry. These are basics, but they should never be overlooked. And considering once you prep 
that concrete, you're going to end up creating contaminants yourself with the remnants of the abrasive prep process. The NACE document references a visual comparison to sandpaper as one way to identify if you have enough surface profile in your concrete. For thicker film coatings, you want that concrete to resemble more of like a 60 to 80 grit sandpaper. For thin film coatings, however, you can be around 150 grit sandpaper. Right. And a document that is also, it's been put out by the Concrete Institute. And in fact, it's... Uh, I cry, the International Concrete Repair Institute. Repair, yes, that's right. They've got a pictorial standard, which actually gives you a reference that you can look at. If you do a lot of concrete work, it'd be worth it to look up. It's an actual physical standard that you can hold, take out, lay down on the ground at the job site and compare it to what you've got. And kind of a general standard, the iCry standards go from uh, one through nine. And kind of the most common that we see is in thin film coatings, an iCry standard of two to five is the normal visual standard that we like to see for a profile. And when we're looking at thicker coatings, we usually like to see something in the four to seven range for that visual standard. What those mean is the visual standards directly correlate with the type of abrasive or surface prep. So a one, for example, is acid etching. Now acid etching is the one thing that no coating manufacturer is going to recommend. Acid etching does the job efficiently. However, it takes your surface and makes it extremely acidic. If you acid etch, you do have to bring that surface back to a neutral pH in order to coat. Otherwise, you can possibly trap acid into the concrete and cause corrosion of the concrete at that point. And then it covers everything from grinding to blasting to scabbling to scarifying. And much like the NACE weld comparator, it just gives you a physical comparator that you can use directly next to your concrete. Every inspector who works on a job that involves concrete should own this set of comparative standards. That's right, Jack. And one of the things that we're looking to do when we do this profiling of these concretes is we're trying to remove that surface layer, and it's commonly known as a latent layer, and that's the loosely adherent concrete layer. It's a thin, weak, brittle layer of cement and fine aggregates that comes to the surface. And you're going to have a thicker or thinner layer there, depending on how much water was used in the troweling process or in the mix, how much they worked it while they were trying to level it and smooth it, what type of texture they were going for on the end. Was it a trowel finish? Was it a power trowel? Was it a broomed finish? All of those are going to affect it. But Well, I want to interrupt you there. The, the broom finish is an important one because when you do a broom finish, you look at it and you might think, hey... This gives me a good rough texture, just like sandpaper. This should be good enough to coat. No, no. I'm looking at the iCry standards, and none of them are labeled as broom finish. Well, so the problem is, is that broom finish is typically comprised of almost all latents. So that latents is that weaker layer. So as soon as something happens to the surface of the concrete, whether it's an impact or mechanical damage, anything else like that, that latents will tend to break off the surface. And when that latents breaks off the surface, so does the coating that's attached to it. So we need to make sure that we're adhering our coating to good, sound concrete. I want to step on a little bit further to the most important factor that we deal with when we're dealing with concrete. We're talking about a moisture barrier earlier. You know, we talked about concrete being a sponge. So if it's on grade, there's always moisture 
in the soil. It rains, it absorbs moisture, there's always groundwater to worry about. Well, if you have a moist and damp soil system and you have a slab on grade, and then that slab on grade starts to get heat on the top side of that slab, it starts to try and pull that moisture through it, which is why we recommend a moisture barrier under that concrete. But the NACE number 6 slash SSPC 13 lays out three different standards that we can use to test for moisture and concrete. The real test that we like to see from a coating manufacturer standpoint is, now I'm going to run through them real quick and then we'll come back in and we'll cover them a little more deeply, I guess, is the ASTM D4263, which is the plastic sheet test. There's also the ASTM F1869, which is the calcium chloride test. And there's ASTM F2170, which is the relative humidity for in-situ probes. The plastic sheet test is great, but the results are strictly pass-fail. Basically, with the plastic sheet test, you tape a piece of plastic down to prepared concrete about a foot and a half by a foot and a half. You leave it there overnight. You come back after 24 hours, pull the plastic up, and the measurement is, is water present? Yes or no? If you get no, that gives you a pretty good indication that the concrete moisture content is low. It doesn't give you a true picture of what it actually is, though. If you do have moisture present, it is absolutely necessary to run one of the other tests to qualify that moisture being present. That's right. The plastic sheet test is a great screening because it is cheap and fast. So the calcium chloride test is similar in method to the plastic sheet test. It's where you encapsulate a Petri dish with calcium chloride in it, in a, like a little plastic dome attached to prepared concrete. The calcium chloride just draws any moisture to it. Uh, the easiest way to describe how it works, it's not the same chemical, but if you ever buy shoes and you get that little bag of it's just the bag that says do not eat this yes and that, and what that little bag is doing is absorbing moisture in the air so the calcium chloride while it's a different chemical does work that same way you measure that petri dish before and after your amount of time the weight gain you then put into a formula that gives you a moisture vapor transmission rate that number is usually in pounds per hours per square feet most coatings are limited to being able to handle 3 pounds per 24 hours per 1,000 square feet. There are coating types that can handle higher levels of moisture vapor transmission, but 3 pounds per 24 hours per 1,000 square feet is the maximum allowable moisture level limit as put in there by NACE number 6 SSBC SB13. Now, this really is a common test and a common procedure. You can find this at a lot of places that deal with flooring. I know they had it at the lumber yard that I bought my wood flooring from. It was the exact same test and the exact same procedure and they had the same three pounds per 24 hours per thousand square feet as we do for coating. So this isn't something that's limited just to paint. You can find this test all over the place. The last test that we wanna talk about is the ASTMD F2170. This one is the relative humidity test using in-situ probes. Now, what this test actually does is measure the humidity level within your concrete. 
This doesn't give you any kind of correlation to movement, just what moisture is present in your concrete. You have a probe that you put into the concrete. You have to drill in your concrete, so it's a destructive test. But you drill a hole in your concrete, you put it down, and then you have a reader that you go around. 80% relative humidity is the maximal allowable moisture limit as identified by NACE number 6 slash SSBCS13. That is one key distinction is the in-situ probe test, the ASTM F2170, is truly a fantastic test to tell you how much moisture is in the concrete, but what distinguishes it from the other two is that one truly is destructive. When you're done, you have a hole that you have to fill. But it did give you a fantastic number to know what is actually present in your concrete. Correct. The other moisture meter test that people ask about, but it is not recommended by NACE or SVC in this joint document, is the Tramex moisture meter. Now, what this meter measures is actually the surface level moisture. So kind of like the plastic sheet test, it doesn't give you a full picture of what's going on in your concrete. It's strictly a pass-fail it is another good screening method. It gives you numbers related to the moisture level, but those numbers will change drastically the more measurements you take on that concrete. It's used primarily in the wood flooring industry, not really the residence flooring industry, because with residence flooring, we really need a picture of how much moisture is moving through the concrete. And the other problem with that is that's an instantaneous reading. It only tells you for, at that moment, how much moisture is there. And since we know that concrete breathes, and it's going to draw moisture through it, as it heats up during the day, it's going to draw more moisture in. Because moisture, just like everything else, is trying to go from a lower... It's trying to... As we know, the moisture in the ground is going to try to diffuse out. It's the osmosis process still. And it's going to go into the concrete because the concrete's drawing it in as it heats up. And that level is going to be different at night as it was in the morning or in the middle of the afternoon. So a meter like that only tells you what it's like at that exact moment. Well, all of these tests, too, have to be taken into consideration. Let's say if you're doing a new construction build, but you're not under a roof, you're not in conditioned space yet. These moisture tests are going to give you a much different picture if you're not in conditioned space, because typically when you have that conditioned space, it's going to be warmer than the outside air, which could drive the moisture to come through the concrete a lot more readily if it was in conditioned space. That's right. In all of these test methods, they are going to say that you should run them under the conditions that the system is going to live in. So if this is outside a secondary containment or a walking surface, a sidewalk, well, then naturally, no, there's not going to be any containment around it. There's not going to be an air-conditioned space. But if this is a warehouse or inside a building or a commercial facility, you don't want to do this until the air conditioning and heating systems have been plugged in and you can actually condition the environment and get an actual reading of what is this going to be like during its life cycle. Exactly. Any other test wouldn't give you the true idea of what you're going to see. And then you always want to do these tests in, in the right parameters because you want to avoid problems. Everybody wants to avoid problems. If you don't perform this test the correct way, you could end up down the road with severe problems. So, Paul, we've kind of skimmed the surface of surface prep of concrete, but we have way exceeded 
our time limit. I had that feeling that was going to happen. We're definitely going to have to pick up later. We'll call this the Concrete 101. We'll probably have Concrete 202 at some point. Talk a little bit more about the moisture tests. Get a little bit into the different types of concrete prep. You know, why sandblasting is better than almost anything versus scabbling, grinding. We can break those down in a different episode. So thanks again for listening. We'll see you next Monday. Thank you.